Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with all of you and to uh, worship and uh, with such beautiful music. So thank you all for serving the church that way. And it's always hard to come and uh, preach at a place that I know Randy Hatchett is at. Uh, he's the storyteller, and so I know a much more uh, effective communicator than I. I'm, uh, if you remember, I'm a former accountant, and so uh, <laughs> if I, uh, Randy and I wrote a book together, and uh, all the best parts, are, uh, the interesting parts are his, and mine are just where there's a chart or a table in there is uh, about all that I was able to add to that. So, um, but it is a, a pleasure to come and um, uh, Randy, I have to say, was as, as a measure of, uh, as a witness to the grace of God, I, I was sick a couple of years back and um, he, he drove me to work almost uh, every day for five months and so, because uh, I had a, a problem with my vision and so uh, it's a pleasure for me to come and, and serve him in this way as well during uh, this time of struggle with his family and uh, my wife is also out of town, so I can't promise that I've uh, dressed myself appropriately, <laughs> but um, uh, she was talking to me before she left. They, we were uh, a sermon series at our church about the God that I don't believe in, so the God that kind of culture portrays and that uh, we uh, don't believe in, and, and it dawned on her, how, uh, uh, so one of the part of this series that my pastor's uh, preaching through is about a, a deist God, a God that's distant and unengaged and, and not active. And, of course, he, he related this is that oftentimes if you feel like your, your earthly father is distant, uh, then sometimes we struggle with that as well. And it dawned on her that how, how much, uh, you know, she struggles to see the active role of God in the world. <coughs> And there's another story, another uh, experience I had that is from a very different vein. In fact, there's two others here that, that came to mind when she mentioned this, and as I was preparing for this sermon, um, that, that comes from a very different angle, but I think has a common solution or a common response. The other is a student I have, he's from the seminary, and um, is in ministry now, pursuing ministry. Um, and, but he said that he didn't feel like he would be fulfilled in life if he wasn't known, a hundred. his name wasn't known widely a hundred years from now. He wanted to be immortal in some way, and so it was uh, an interesting take, and again, you may not think it has anything to do with what my wife is talking about, but there's, there's a common thread that holds this and then this third experience that I had together. I went to the dentist the other day, and the, the hygienist there was visibly shaken because she was worried about the coming apocalypse, the end of the world. Um, and of course, as you know, it's uh, never uh, a happy experience of the dentist anyway. I've, I've been blessed at least with strong teeth, but no matter when they're cleaning your teeth, it never seems, to, you know, and so you don't want them to be tense and these things. But as we were chatting through that, uh, what the big issue was is that her transmission was going out on her car and her sister said, look, you, you should not spend money to fix that because like the end times are so close <laughs> that you're going to need that for when the apocalypse happens. And again, it, it, uh, I understand, I mean, it's um, uh, this uh, 
tension that we have, right? When we think, we see the end of the world. I mean, uh, there's all the birth pangs that seems that, you know, Jesus talked about are going on these days. And when I was there, like, thinking of the three of these, they're, they're all coming from a different place. And yet, the, the answer, now, of course, uh, uh, as an academic, I have to throw a big term at you, is eschatology. They, they all have to do with the version of eschatology. So, eschatology is, comes from the Greek word, the end, or the final things, right? So, we usually think of eschatology as related to that last story about how things are progressing towards Christ's return, maybe the tribulation, the millennium, these, these things like this. And yet, the whole idea of eschatology is not just about the end when it happens, but it's how the, the shape of the end characterizes the story, how we get there all together. And so we're going to look at a passage today from 2 Corinthians, um, and we're going to look at actually three chapters, so 3, 4, and 5, uh, to see a narrative of God's work in the world that addresses all three of these stories. Because there's a story about a distant God who's not active or a story that we live our lives that we have to do something great for it to matter or this story that something traumatic is going to happen in the end that we have to be afraid of. And I think all three of those are stories that don't really hold up with the gospel well. And so if we understood the gospel narrative of God's action in the world, then it would reframe the way that each of these are looking at the way they pursue life and ministry. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through chapters two or 3, 4, and 5 in 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible with me, they, they asked me if uh, they would project the verse, but I'm actually going to go through all three chapters. And so um, at sometimes we do really well at looking at four or five verses, but I think if we see the bigger picture here, maybe we'll get a bigger scope of the way things work. So let me give you, before we get into that passage, just a basic uh, timeline or kind of vision of, of God's work in the world. And so let me do some moving around here. So if we come over here and we think of this as the Garden of Eden, right? God creates the world, creates a good world. He cares about this world. Uh, he creates people to live in it and flourish and enjoy this world. And of course, we just take a step over or half a step and uh, humanity corrupts this world. And so the rest of the story of Scripture, all the way over here to Revelation, to the very end of the story, is God working to ameliorate or kind of uh, hold back the results of sin until ultimately when Christ comes back and restores things and we see the, the life of the Garden of Eden that God had intended in the first place. So if you go read Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters in the Bible, they use Garden of Eden imagery to show when God comes and fix and restores everything, it looks like what he had intended it to be in the first place. And so it's all part of one narrative that he is orchestrating. And so it, when we think of where Jesus fits into that story, we, we actually have to think about the Old Testament first. And so Jews had the expectation that God would come and fix the world, right? So they had, of course, Genesis is out of their scriptures in the Old Testament. And then we have Abraham and these covenants. And, and the covenants were pointing forward to where God would bring full restoration. And so in the Old Testament, they had the expectation 
that the day of the Lord would come, and that's when God would come and restore things. That's when Yahweh himself would come and send a Messiah, send his Holy Spirit to come and bring transformation. So the day of the Lord would set this future restoration in, in play. And so that was the Jewish story, right? The people would live, and they're waiting in expectation until the day of the Lord when God would come and act. And so that's the hope that they lived in. In fact, we would call that an eschatology, right? Eschatology, again, has to do with God's action to bring restoration. So the world is broken right now, and God is going to come fix things. And so the day of the Lord was when, in the Old Testament, we would expect God to come fix things. So Christians, they're good Jews, right? I mean, they, the Old Testament, four-fifths of our Bible is the Old Testament. It still directs Christian theology. But the difference there is it wasn't the day of the Lord's just not something that's going to happen in the future. Actually, for now, we have to see that the day of the Lord has already happened. Christ himself is the Lord uh, come down to earth, right? And so when we see Christ and he brings that initial transformation and brings the Spirit through Pentecost, we now have the day of the Lord separated into two days or split into two. So we have the first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ is when the day of the Lord as the Jews expected to happen, and we live in this in-between times where some of the things that Christ, uh, that the Jews expected are already happening, uh, but then there's other things that are not going to happen till later. And so what in theology we call this, the, it's really technical terminology, the already and the not yet right? Uh, Christ has brought life and forgiveness already. It's here and now, so we can experience it. And yet there's a not yet aspect of where uh, there's still pain and suffering, and when Christ comes again, that's when that will be resolved. And so as we come to 2 Corinthians 3 to 5, look like in the future, we see a very clear kind of progression in that already and not yet, and then what it will look like in the future. And so that's what we're going to do today is instead of doing a, a, a few verses four or five or something you might normally have we're going to walk through three chapters so of course i'm not going to speak as uh, closely about any one uh, but to give you that wider picture maybe give you a sense of and ask you this question what's the story that you're living your life by so i, I talked about the the hygienist my wife my uh, former student they're all living their lives, or the way they envision the story on which they're guiding their lives was not this story. And, of course, uh, as we live and understand this story, then they would have approached the way that they did things differently and are approaching those differently, right? And so um, that's our task here, then, is to jump in. So let's walk, so with this in mind, the already and the not yet, let's jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So in this passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians, Paul's defending his ministry. And so one of the main ways he's going to defend his ministry is to say uh, the Corinthians didn't, um, you know, I guess Paul was maybe following up a Randy Hatchet, right? So Apollos is a better preacher than, than he was. And so Paul was having to defend, well, why should you consider me an authoritative apostle? And, and he, he uses this eschatology of the already. The Spirit is already here now and so and you know that because you've seen transformation in your own life and of course he's going to use that as a defense for his ministry he's going to say look 
if you call yourselves good Christians, then you have to blame me for that, right? You can't just blame me for all the bad stuff you experience. And so we, when we turn to 2 Corinthians 3 here, let's jump in at verse 2. He says, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so he's defending his ministry by saying the Spirit and Christ are already here transforming your hearts. In verse 6, he explains this a little bit further as he's talking about his ministry and particularly their experience of that ministry. He says, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so in this sense, he's saying, look, the Old Testament was good. It, and in fact, the rest of the chapter is going to explain, look, there was glory in the Old Testament. Moses experienced God's glory. Moses heard from God, right? There, the Old Testament speaks about the reality of God's act. But now that Christ has come, like the, the true life of the Spirit is something that we're experiencing already here and now and so we can see evidence of that in their lives and in their hearts and in fact if we go down to verse 17 and 18 he comes to the climax of this argument he says uh well let's do 16 but whenever one when anyone turns to the lord the veil is taken away so he's talking about a veil that moses had over his eyes but then also a metaphorical veil that we can't understand the truth of god's scripture when everyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so the focus of this whole chapter is that when, in Christ and through Christ, the Holy Spirit has already come. The Holy Spirit is already here, here and now. And we see this uh, echoed throughout the New Testament. So take, for instance, uh, Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 12, he's talking about, uh, he's cast out a demon, and there, there was a question about, is he on Satan's side, or which kingdom did he represent? And Jesus said, look, it, look, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so what he's saying is, wherever you see the Spirit working is, my kingdom is there. We see the same thing in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when the Spirit comes down on the church, and then Peter preaches a church, uh, sermon, and he quotes this passage from Joel 2, one of these eschatological passages, right? Eschatology is this hope for the future, and Joel was saying, said this, In the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And so that was the marker that the end times had already started at Pentecost because the Spirit had come down on God's people. And so this is Paul's message of hope. We don't have to wait until Christ returns to experience the life of God. Remember, as he said in verse 6, even though the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. And so we have that life, the access to that life here and now. And the story, uh, in a way, that um, some talk about, so like with my wife's story, um, 
it was a story of waiting on God to do something because God's not active right now. And yet Paul's message here is that, no, the Spirit is here now, and he's transforming us to uh, be like Christ, to bring us into Christ's kingdom and experience his life. In fact, uh, the, the song during the offertory was Blessed Assurance. It was so beautiful. But what is that? Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. I have a, we already have a foretaste here and now of the glory divine. We don't have to wait to the future to experience God's act. We don't have to wait for the future to experience true restoration. So anytime you see life at work, then we know that's the Spirit's work within us. We, we think of the fruit of the Spirit even now, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are great things the world is after, and we have access to this because Christ has poured out his spirit on his church. Or the gifts of the spirit, those that have the gift of uh, teaching and encouragement, prophecy, um, what is it? mercy giving, gift giving, right? These are all gifts that God has given us and through the church we share and experience God's love through the reality of this. And we even see the spirit unveiling people's minds and hearts. So uh, the Disciple Now is coming up. What's it called? One Weekend? Okay, so I, I really encourage all of you to participate in this in whatever way you can. I, I think back to my own experience in life. It was as a sophomore in high school that I went to a Disciple Now, and it was that challenge to hear and experience God's Spirit through reading the scriptures that God had, the Spirit has inspired that totally changed my life. And so I encourage you, if you're interested in, in wanting to embody what does it look like to live out a life of the Spirit, well, it's to listen to where the Spirit is speaking to us through the Scriptures, but also to encourage and help other people uh, encounter that message of life. I have a, a, a student, uh, an undergraduate student a few years back, uh, really had this veil pulled back from her eyes through the work of the Spirit as Paul talks about here, she uh, was uh, engaged uh, to this young man and he had joined the Navy and so had been stationed in San Diego. And as she went to or was considering her further life with him, she decided to surprise him and sell everything and then move out to San Diego and uh, meet him and connect with him there. Well, when she got there, he... Uh, had rejected her. He had already started dating somebody else and so was two-timing her and just in this fit of shame and rage she went back to her hotel room and just was destroying the place. Just was devastated that uh, all these hopes didn't of course didn't want to return home and the shame that it and tell her family that everything was going to turn out exactly opposite of what she had expected is re rejected by him, and so she's tearing up this hotel room. Uh, a picture falls off the wall, right, and the glass shatters, and so she actually picks up the piece of glass to commit suicide. And she says as a miracle, that at the same time, a, a drawer fell open um, and a Gideon Bible fell out. And so she had the piece of glass in her hand, and then as she looked there, saw that Bible, and stopped 
and just opened it and read it, and I can't remember what passage she said, but again, it was God's Spirit unveiling her eyes to the truth and reality of God's grace for broken people even now. It's not something we have to wait for to the future. God's grace through Jesus Christ is here and now. And it's an amazing testimony of how she uh, devoted her life to Christ at that moment and returned to the church and uh, is following him today. And you may not have these dramatic stories, right? God's, uh, but part of that's that whole idea is that God, we're not waiting on God to work in the future. He was at work even now in her brokenness. We have other places where we see God at work in much more normal ways. Like a disciple now is a very, you know, did, did some light from heaven shine down on me as a sophomore there in that house that somebody had hosted and other people had prayed for us? No. I mean, I, I told my youth minister I was going to try to read my Bible a little bit more. Five minutes a day is what the whole question was. And yet, those little steps, right, over time just changed the trajectory. And so sometimes the Spirit works in traumatic ways or dr- dramatic ways that changes our lives or frees us from addictions and uh, problems, heals uh, bodies physically. And other times, the Spirit works through those little small steps that word of kindness that we receive from somebody else, that gift of somebody who teaches Sunday school or ministers their time to those in need. It's not this dramatic change, and yet the life of God is in that moment. And we have that moment because God has already and is already acting here and now. And so I encourage you to use your spiritual gifts. Use those gifts of the Spirit to serve and show God and embody God's kingdom here and now with other others. But also I encourage you to share your stories of how God is working in your life. This was the whole thing about my wife is that she was under the, the mode of thinking until recently, you know, and, and wouldn't have said this, right? It's just the way you live your life. It's Because uh, she would say God's active, but it's like it dawned on her that I always just keep waiting for something else to happen in the future when Christ comes back. But God is active here and now. And so to share those stories with one another when you see God moving, even in those little moments, those God stories, as they say, to share those with one another, to encourage one another so that we don't have this, this future view of God coming to act. So God's kingdom, again, as we're thinking about the day of the Lord, it happens twice. It has come in Christ's first advent and then in his second. And so we see the already. God's kingdom is already here, here and now, because of Christ and through the Spirit. And yet we still see struggles in this passage. So the whole idea is that the Spirit's taking away the veil. And if we move into chapter 4, the early parts of chapter 4, we see that Paul talks about this veiling actually doesn't just automatically go away because the Spirit is here. He says in verse 3, And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light 
of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So even though Christ is already here, his glory, the light of God is already shining upon us, what does he say? We still have this veiling, right? We have an enemy in the world, the devil, right? The God of this age is still veiling people's eyes, making it hard for them to see the gospel. And so even though the kingdom of God has already been established here, there's still the kingdom of Satan that is going on that is going to be battling against the kingdom and the people of God until Christ returns. And we don't know, like, it doesn't make sense to me why God decided to split this up. Why didn't Jesus just come back and fix everything and, and make everything right then? In God's mercy and his wisdom, he decided to split it in two, but as we as his people, we're going to struggle in what we call the not yet aspect of the kingdom as we wait until the second return of Christ. So the spirit is already here, transforming. Christ is bringing forgiveness now, and yet we must wait during this time when the kingdom of Satan is still active, and our minds even become blinded and yet even worse is not just the blindness of our hearts it's the the pain and suffering we have in this not yet time so let's go to verse seven he says we have this treasure in jars of clay so we have this treasure we have this knowledge the light of christ so even for believers who have seen and revealed and understood that light of christ so that our minds aren't blinded that treasure is in jars of clay. So maybe our minds are transformed, but our bodies are still quite mortal, the brittle, like jars of clay. But this is to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from ourselves. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned struck down but not destroyed do you get that that god's people still experience the pain and suffering that sin has in the world sin has not been expunged from our experience and so anywhere that sin is death and suffering are going to be along with that and so even though christ has brought forgiveness of those sins like we still live and we still do sinful things right and so our bodies experience that reality of this struggling world and yet at the same time they're not just struggles right what does he say that we are hard-pressed but not crushed perplexed but not in despair so even in the midst of those struggles god's grace is already here to carry us through them so again we don't have to wait to the future for christ to come back but we experience the life of god even here and now so let's keep going in in this passage we carry around in our body the death of jesus so that the life of jesus may also be revealed in our body for we who are alive are always being given over to death for jesus sake so that his life may be revealed in our bodies so then death is at work in us but life in you and so this is the mystery of the gospel that not only did jesus suffer and die and to bring life to the rest of the world but his believers, as we follow with him, as we suffer, we actually embody and transfer his life to those that are broken. And so we see this idea of suffering in the world. Suffering itself is meaningless. There's nothing good about suffering. And yet suffering, when it's mixed with love, becomes sacrifice. 
So Christ's suffering, we could have just seen him as a, a poor man, oppressed by a brutal government, and put down as a uh, civil disobedience or something like that. And yet, because he pour, gave out his life in love, and in fact it was infinite love, it became a lever that changed the whole direction of history. It brought God's life for all those who would follow him after it. And yet we too, as we follow in Christ, what did Christ say to his disciples? Whoever wants to follow me must take up their cross, deny themselves and follow me. Because we have to follow that path of dying as well. And yet as we do it in love and through the power of the Spirit, our sacrifice, our suffering actually becomes the levers that brings life to others. And so again, we're not many saviors running around here. What we are is conduits, right? We're these jars of clay that God's treasure is being poured out on others. And so it's the life of the Spirit, the life of Christ, that as we sacrifice for them, uh, we see God's life at work. So this already bit makes perfect sense, right? Christ came here to do all these things. This not yet stuff doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Again, why does God do all this suffering? And I think part of it is we have a prosperity gospel at work. In this sense, that if we think if we, if we do good things, then we'll have a nice house, and we'll have nice cars, and we'll live in a nice neighborhood, and have the nice neighbors, and have a nice boss. Right? And we just know that's not the way life works. Now, there are things that if we follow God, we'll avoid some pain and suffering. So I'm a big fan of Dave Ramsey, right? My former life's in accounting and finance, and so I, I love his call to uh, minimizing or reducing all debt. Uh, and so you avoid, if, you, if you're not in debt, like if you don't owe money on your car, it can't be repossessed, right? It, so if you follow this mode, then it saves you from some forms of suffering. Uh, which is true, it's very good, but at the same time, being, not being in debt doesn't save you from a hurricane coming, right? Not being in debt doesn't save you from your brother having leukemia. We can't avoid the corruptions of this world just by living better. We can avoid some of them, in fact, a lot of them, right? As our relationships, as we're loving, forgiving, these things. But the whole idea is that Christ is with us even in those sufferings that we either could have avoided or couldn't have avoided as we follow him. So are you, anybody in here struggling from despair or facing the death of a loved one, even your own death? Even facing depression, right? Stats tell us that uh, a third... 20% of those will be in this room right now will have some form of depression. And so, like, we as Christians are not immune to these problems in this world because sin is still here. And yet, even in the midst of that, we have this hope that God is carrying us through. So what, what do we do in these circumstances? Well, let me encourage you to turn to the Psalms. Uh, Paul has a psalm here later in chapter 4 that he speaks of. It's a lament psalm. A lament psalm is where they're praying for God's grace in the midst of their brokenness. They're lamenting the things that are going wrong. 
And these psalms are great because they help us walk through really hard times while also keeping our focus on God's act in our lives. But I also encourage you, like I said, we, we don't only want to share our stories of the victories, of where the Spirit is obviously working. We want to share these stories of the not yet as well, where we're struggling, waiting for God to come. So sometimes we only share testimonies at the end, right? Once God has d fixed everything. I think sometimes we need to be sharing these testimonies of, I'm in the midst of it right now. Uh, and in fact, that was one of the big things that my wife uh, had come to is that uh, she's been struggling with uh, some back problems. And so uh, we have people that will pray for those after the service at our church. And she was always like, prayer was always for somebody else, right? The people that had the serious problems. And her whole, as she re-envisioned this story, is that, no, God is active here and now, even for those that are in the midst of brokenness. And so sharing that story, right? And so she hasn't been healed. Her back still has given her trouble. And yet her sharing that story has given life to others as she's walked <coughs> through that with others. And so I encourage you not only to turn to God through the lament psalms, but also to turn to others and find that life and support through them. So we have the already, right, where Christ has come in his first advent, and we're waiting in this not yet time as Christ comes in his second advent. And what happens in chapter 5? We see when Christ returns what will happen. What is our hope as believers? So if we'll read the first few verses of chapter 5. It says, We know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by hu human hands. Now, he could mean a lot of things by this tent, but he's talking about our bodies. Now, notice in this service, maybe we have those that understand, feel the tentness of their body better than maybe those in the next service, right? Where we are struggling with the temporary nature of our bodies. Two years ago, like I said, I couldn't drive for five months. It, it, it put my mortality uh, straight in front of me. Uh, in a way that as we get older, we see that and we feel. And so what are we going to do with that? Does that make us give up hope? And Paul's uh, argument is that, no, things are even better. As good as life is now, things are even better in the future, right? So God does give us bodies as he intended. So he says in verse 2 in chapter 5, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, our resurrected bodies, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in, in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Right? That's the not yet. Took my head up, and now I can't find my place. We're grown and burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but instead to have a heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. For he has given us the spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So what is he saying? Look, the spirit is already here. And so you know that the true life, the resurrection life, is even going to be better in the future. Because you're already experiencing life as the down payment now. But there's more here. What does it look like to live in this life as we hope for that future, the hereafter? He says in verse 6, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. <coughs> Excuse me. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So he's telling this narrative, like we have this, this creation that's been corrupted, and Christ and the Spirit came, and so we have life here and now. And while, even though life is here, we're still in this tent kind of existence, right? Mortal bodies that suffer, we groan. And yet when Christ returns, we're going to experience that heavenly dwelling. And yet what happens at that time, too, that, that fits into the story is that there is a judgment there. We don't often think, I don't, I don't, can't remember the last time I heard a, a strong ser- sermon about heaven and hell in the same way that I grew up on. Uh, but this text says that we have to live our lives here and now in light of that future, right? It's not just for the moment. It's not just our glory that we're after, but it's Christ's glory and living our lives in a different way. And of course, he says we have to live by faith and not by sight because we don't see God's glory fully worked out in the world, right? We see, still see war, we see fighting, we experience that death. And so that's the story then that we live in light of. The hope here is that it's not that life is, um, comes here and then things get worse. The whole idea is that when Christ comes back, things get better. And so for my hygienist that didn't grasp the nature of the story as a believer, she has hope when, right, it's better when Christ comes than it is now. And so in that sense, like, she didn't understand the narrative, the story that she was living in. Or my other student that wanted his glory, he wanted to be the one that was famous, and actually it's Christ's glory that's coming out here. And so I encourage you as you think, what is the narrative that you're living by? Is it a narrative where God is distant, and so you just got to white-knuckle it until he comes back? Uh, Is it a story where you're the main character, and and religion is just something there that is there to kind of prop up your identity? Or is it Christ's story where the Spirit is transforming you and you're walking out the discipleship of following Christ by taking up his cross so that his life will be brought forward and that Christ will find us as faithful servants there when he returns. And so I encourage you to do what Paul says in 4.18. He says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. And also in verse uh, 7 of chapter 5, we live by faith, not by sight. Because we have that future, that eschatology that's driving us forward, I encourage you to live with that sense that God is active here and now, and he will be active in the future and live your life according to that. So if you don't get any of this, let me give you one last uh, illustration of how this plays out. I used to do a little bit of mountain biking, uh, I found out I wasn't coordinated enough to uh, to do this because when you fall off a mountain bike, you know it's not just falling on. It's bad enough to fall on on cement or pavement. Uh, it's really bad if you're going down a hill and hit a bump. You flip over and do all sorts of bad things, right? But when when I was up in Dallas at a church, we had a riding group there that would go through some trails, and the main thing that the guy said is, "Don't look at the the bumps right in front of you." 
you got to keep your head about 10 or 20 feet down the road because where your focus is is where your bike will go. And so if you're trying to avoid little potholes here or there, you might avoid that one but get into a bigger problem over there. And so this is what eschatology is about. It's not about knowing who the Antichrist is or when World War III is going to happen. It's knowing and looking down the future and seeing what is ahead of me is that Christ is bringing life through broken people even now, and we even have a greater hope when he returns. And so it's letting that, those eternal things that are set before us drive what we do here and now. And so let's pray as we consider how God might call you to participate in this story. Father, we thank you that you are the living and active God, and that as we see and encounter Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, as we encounter the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, that we encounter your active presence in the world. We don't have to wait until the future to experience true life, true forgiveness, even true healing, but that we know that you are active here and now. So I pray for those that might have had a distant view of God, that they would come and be drawn and depend on you. But for those that are looking to the future and are unsure, we also pray and thank you, God, that you're active and that even in the midst of the night yet, we can have the hope for the future as you come and bring restoration and as we look forward to that future. And so we commit ourselves to you even now. And so in the midst of our weakness, when we groan, we know that your life is being played out in ours as we follow you in love to make that suffering sacrifice. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. Amen.